0: We have many reasons to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. One primary reason that we have to seek to bring the gospel to others is the very fact that Christ has commanded us to do this. So out of obedience, we proclaim the gospel to others. For example, in the Great Commission, found in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, We're commanded to make disciples, to go out and make disciples of all nations. We, We make disciples of Jesus Christ, which necessarily includes the preaching of the gospel. So if Christians were today to stop sharing the gospel of Christ, no one would get saved, and thus no one would ever get baptized, and no one would then be taught to obey all the things that Christ commanded. In other words, the Great Commission would stop. The Great Commission requires that each one of us be active in evangelism. We're all commanded in the Great Commission to be active in making disciples. As Christians, we are representatives of Christ on the earth. The Apostle Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so we are the heralds, of our great king who go out and proclaim his message to a lost and sin-cursed world. And so out of a desire to love and serve our Lord, we evangelize. Out of obedience, we evangelize, which ultimately results in the glorifying of God. We evangelize to see God's name exalted on the face of the earth. We want him to be worshipped by all the people on the earth. So we proclaim the gospel so that God will have more worshipers. I mean, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So we evangelize, we, we make disciples, we share the gospel so that God would receive glory. We, so here we see that we evangelize out of obedience and we evangelize for the sake of God's glory. And thirdly, we also evangelize because we love people Jesus commands us to love people to love all people love even our enemies so out of love for fellow human beings who are made in the image of God we long for them to know Jesus we know that the wages of sin is death that what man deserves what he has gained for his rebellion against God is spiritual separation an eternal spiritual death apart from God Those who reject Christ in this life will suffer for all eternity. Those who do not come to embrace him and surrender before him will suffer the full fury of God's wrath for all eternity. Their fate will be the place that Jesus refers to as the the place of outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if we understand this infinite suffering, and if we think about this rightly, then there should be a great sense of urgency in us. We should warn the people around us about the wrath that is to come. And so understanding the severity of hell, we we want to people to come to Him. We desperately want them to come to Him because we love them as Christ has commanded us to love them. So we evangelize out of obedience, we evangelize to bring glory to the Lord, and we evangelize out of love for our neighbor. And each one of these is a powerful motive for evangelism. And yet we know that evangelism is a struggle. It's not easy. And if we have such great motivations like these that we have, then why don't we evangelize more? Well, in part, is it not because, is it not because we know that the gospel itself is offensive, that when we share Christ, that people often get offended. People don't like to be evangelized. I mean, according to the truth of the gospel, man is sinful. He's naturally sinful, and not just in part, but in whole. The the core of man is rotten. We are all depraved, and we have rebelled against a holy God and have accrued his wrath. He will punish us. And even furthermore, any good works that you do to try to appease God and buy your salvation only further adds to condemnation. And so man naturally hates to hear this. Man naturally loves himself. He loves sin. He loves to gratify the desires of his heart. He doesn't want to be told that he's a sinner, that God will judge him. So the gospel naturally offends. Man does not want to be morally restrained by God. He hates the gospel. He wants to tear off God's fetters on him. He wants to live freely, independently, with no thought of God and so we say the gospel is offensive and and we know this the scriptures tell us this and by experience we know this and so with such great motivations that we have to share the share the gospel but with such opposition that we have to sharing the gospel the temptation within the church and the temptation for Christians is to make the gospel more palatable to make the gospel more acceptable less offensive To make the gospel more inviting, less distasteful to man's modern sensibilities. We want to make the gospel more general and less definitive, less narrow, less restrictive, and more of a warm and welcoming message and less of a stumbling block. And so there's really no end to man's tinkering with the gospel message. We think this, this truth must be turned so we hide its sharp edge, or this truth must be tweaked to make it more inclusive, or this truth must be tucked out of sight entirely. And This is always the case. Man's temptation is to believe that he can, temper, he can tamper with the gospel of Jesus Christ and it still be the one true saving gospel. But all such tampering with the gospel, all such distorting of the truth only leads to catastrophic damage and the proliferation of false gospels, false gospels that cannot save. And in this regard, the last century or so of American church history has just been one giant exposition of the ingenuity of mankind. Man's ability to pragmatically adjust the gospel to make it more acceptable to modern man. And one of the ways that the gospel has been perverted in our day, and it is the distortion of the gospel that I'd like us to focus on this morning, is the reduction of the cost of following Christ. We might call it the cost of discipleship. The cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, according to the scriptures and according to Jesus himself, the cost of being a Christian is tremendously high. But according to many today, the cost is altogether insignificant. In fact, it's free. Becoming a Christian only provides benefits. There's no cost. It it will cost you nothing to be a Christian. So whether this is rooted in motivations to please God and to love other people or even more, maybe more sinister desires to perhaps grow a movement or grow a church, the gospel is adjusted to be more palatable, to be more convenient, more acceptable. It is argued that, that one can embrace the gospel, that they can become a, a true child of God and remain unchanged. Just go on living their normal life, give up nothing. One can simply add Jesus to their life plan as simple as adding life insurance or a life insurance policy, even a free one at that. Becoming a Christian has been reduced to a a simple one-time decision. I want all the benefits that Jesus provides. Naturally, I want the eternal life, and therefore I, I choose him, and so I decide today to become a Christian, and voila, I am. Today, it's common for many people to be told they're Christians because they made a a spiritual decision without ever understanding the cost of following Christ, understanding even what it means to be a Christian, without ever taking a hard look at what Jesus said it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, without ever counting the cost of discipleship. Modern evangelical modern sharing christ or evangelism has devolved into a emotional appeals that severely truncate the gospel message and then culminate in calls for a de- decision but just pray this prayer and boom you're in just do this thing and now you're a christian and then we wonder why so many young people are leaving the church rejecting the faith entirely And so out of this good desire to love people and see people saved, we've redefined the gospel and Christianity itself, and in so doing have forfeited the truth and confused many. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously referred to this as cheap grace. But Jesus himself rejected all such pragmatic approaches to evangelism. And in fact, in the passage we come to today, Jesus made the reality of the Christian life plain for all to see. He wanted people to know what it would cost them. And so he did not hide the price tag from them. He, he, in fact, punctuated it. And so to see this with me this morning, take out your Bible and open it up to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. If you've been with us this summer, you've known, you have know that we've been going for several weeks now just trying to understand what Jesus said it means to be a follower of Christ. We've been focusing on the Gospel of Luke, just seeking to understand what does Jesus say about being a Christian? What is a Christian? And so for the last month, we've been focusing on this 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And there's really one more account this morning that I, would, I just want us to focus on. I don't want us to miss this last version or this last account here towards the end of luke chapter 14 the passage we come to this morning begins in verse 25 and i believe it's incredibly relevant for the church today so look there verse 25 Uh, the the principle that jesus emphasizes here should be a central consideration in all of our evangelism and all of our preaching of the gospel and yet this is a neglected passage it should be a staple of our evangelism and yet it's Nearly forgotten. When we share Christ with someone, whether it be our four year old daughter or, or our 80 year old grandmother, we should have this passage in our minds. When we're, when we're counseling a teenage child who's in rebellion or, or laboring with a brother in the church who's caught in sin, or even as we think about our own walk with Christ, we should think carefully about this passage. And this passage must mold and shape our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So let's read it together. Look with me at verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple for which one of you when he wants to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the costs to see if he, is a, if he has enough to complete it otherwise when he laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who observe it begin to ridicule him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions." Three times in this passage, Jesus gives a sharp qualification for any who would want to be his disciple. Three times, Jesus says, unless this is true of a person, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 26 ends this way, verse 27 ends that way, and so does verse 33. All with these words, he cannot be my disciple. And so with this threefold repetition, we really don't have to wonder what the main theme of this passage is. This passage is about being a disciple of Christ. And more specifically in this passage, Jesus gives us three absolute essentials that are required to become a Christian. These three things, if they're not true of someone, Jesus says they cannot join his team. They cannot be his disciple. And being a disciple of Christ is ultimate, ultimately what we all need to be. Understand that being a disciple of Christ is to be a Christian. A Christian is fundamentally a disciple of Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ are disciples, and only followers of Jesus Christ will enter heaven. Therefore, it's essential that we all be his disciples, that we all be his followers on this earth. We must all be. That's what we're trying to make in the world. We're trying to make disciples, make Christians. So of course, we should all want to be his disciples, Therefore, the qualifications that Jesus gives here for discipleship should be incredibly important to us. I mean, who would be so foolish to apply for a new job without first studying the qualifications for that position? I mean, applicants who don't have meet the necessary qualifications for a role are quickly dismissed. You must meet the qualifications. And so we ought to know well the qualifications for discipleship here that Jesus, is, that Jesus gives. But what Jesus gives here are more than simply qualifications. They're descriptions of the life of a disciple. These things must be true in order for a person to become a Christian, but they're also, they also just describe the life of a disciple. They're qualifications for those who would consider becoming a disciple, but they're also just descriptions of the Christian life in general. And so this morning, I've just landed on calling them three aspects of the cost of discipleship. There's really three ways of looking at the one cost of discipleship here. First, we're going to see the relational cost. And then we'll see the temporal cost. And finally, the material cost. And so along with these three aspects of the cost of discipleship, Jesus in the middle gives two illustrations to really drive home his point here. And we'll end our time with those. But before we jump into these points, note who Jesus is speaking these words to in verse 25. Look at your Bible with me. Here's what it says. Now the large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, large crowds, note the plural, multiple groups of people flocking behind jesus they've seen his miracles they've had their stomachs filled with bread he has healed their sick and now they're following him in droves and in this section of the gospel of luke jesus is sort of in travel mode he's making his way ultimately to jerusalem and at this point in his ministry jesus's popularity with the people has exploded but it's almost in Unthinking belligerence in their following of him. They're following along with Jesus, walking in his steps, just waiting for the next spectacular thing to happen. What will come next? What will he say next? What will he do next? And in dramatic fashion, Jesus abruptly turns and brings an end to their enthusiasm there in verse 25. And look what he says to them as he turns to them and makes this point. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So here Jesus gives the relational cost, the relational cost. Now we're obviously a bit taken back here by Jesus' word choice. Jesus could have employed any number of softer, gentler words, ways of communicating, communicating here but he doesn't he could have said if anyone does not love me more than your own family you cannot be my disciple or he could have said if anyone does not prefer me over his own family he cannot be my disciple but jesus said neither of these things he, he used the most extreme language jesus chose the word hate it's a strong word in our culture and it was a strong word in Jesus's culture. The basic meaning is to have a, a strong aversion to someone, to, 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 to detest them. And some have tried to really tone down this word hate by, by noting that the Hebrews had a way of employing col- colorful language, a passionate language to portray their indifference or, or their preference. And to some degree, I suppose that's true, but this is still an incredibly strong word. When we compare how Jesus used this word hate elsewhere one does not get the sense that Jesus is using this word in a way that's out of the norm for how we use this word for example in Luke 6:22, Jesus said blessed are you when men hate you when they ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the son of man so think about this. When someone ostracizes you, when they insult you, when they scorn your name as evil, I think it's appropriate to say that they hate you. That's how the word is used there. They hate you. And another example, in Luke 21, 16 through 17, Jesus prophesied about how his own disciples would be treated. He said, but, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated because of my name. You will be hated by all because of my name. So without question, we know that Jesus is using a very strong term here in Luke 14. But we can also, also say definitively that Jesus was not calling his disciples to be outright mean, or to be brutish to their family. I mean, in Matthew 15:4, Jesus affirms, that we are to honor our father and mother. That's how his disciples are to live. Also, in Ephesians 5, husbands are called to love their wives. In Titus 2, 4, women are called to love their husbands. Parents are called to love their children and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what did Jesus mean when he said, if anyone comes to me, he does not And if he does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does Jesus mean here? Jesus is being hyperbolic. He's using hyperbolic language to express the level of allegiance that must exist within one of his disciples if they want to be his true follower. They must have a supreme allegiance for Christ. All other loves in one's life must be subordinate to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is calling for supreme allegiance relationally to Christ. There's a parallel passage of this one found in Matthew chapter 10. It'd be helpful for us to look at it. Turn back there with me to Matthew chapter 10. Back up two books in your Bible to Matthew chapter 10. And look with me at verse 34, at what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, Jesus says. Do not think that I came for the chief goal of just establishing peace or relational harmony. Look how he continues, verse 35. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of of his own household. Jesus warned that becoming a disciple of Christ would sort of inject relational disharmony into your family. When a person swears allegiance to Christ, while the rest of their family remains committed to the God of this world... The evil one, Satan himself, then we should expect relational turmoil. I mean, look how this continues in verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So, yes, we are to love our family members, of course. We are to love our neighbors and even our enemies. But our love for them can never surpass our love for Christ. Our love for our family must never compete with our love for Christ. As a disciple of Christ, your supreme allegiance must remain with Christ, even if it costs you your family. Make your way back to Luke 14, and as you go there, th- think of it this way Your desire to please Christ must far surpass. Your desire to please your parents. Your desire to please Christ must far surpass your desire to please your spouse, your husband or wife, or even to please your own self, your own selfish desires. Look at it again with me. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my own disciple be a disciple of Christ means you hate your life. What does this mean? It means that you're constantly denying yourself, constantly saying no to the things you want, and constantly surrendering what God wants for you. This, for us as men, this means that after a hard day's work on the job site, when we want to just come home and just be lazy, kick back in the recliner, watch TV, and sort of neglect our wife and kids, and just sort of lick our wounds, for the day we have to sort of kick ourselves in the rib and say no we have more work to do we have to get up and serve our wives serve our kids love our children bless them spend time with them exude christ-like love we deny ourselves. that's what it looks like to hate yourself it's to say no to the things that you fleshly want this is what a disciple of christ does This also means if we're too tired to wake up in the morning to study the Bible and the alarm bell rings, we have to get out of bed. We wake up to read the scriptures. We're following the path of Psalm 1 of a righteous man who meditates on the the law of the Lord day and night. We we motivate ourselves to deny ourselves. This also means that if your spouse has no desire for Christ, you still follow Christ. If your spouse has no desire for church or the things of the Lord and won't come with you to church, then you leave them at home. You come anyway. Your family can never prevent you from obeying Christ. Christ must receive your supreme allegiance in this life if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. So make, my, make no mistake here, following Christ will change your relationships. It will change your family. It may even cost you your family. I mean, certainly this is true in many places of this world where you will fall out completely, even be sought down and killed for following Christ. So this is the relational cost of being a disciple. Next, we find what I'm calling the temporal cost in in verse 27. Look at it with me in your own Bible. Verse 27, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple we saw a very similar statement like this back in Luke 9 23 we studied it about a month ago which says there in verse 23 Luke 9 if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me so picking up your cross means you take up your own means of execution to to pick up your cross in Jesus's day meant to be willing to die for Christ Be willing to be executed each and every day. It was all out surrender to Christ. Be willing to die for Christ. And so in in no uncertain terms, this is a call to follow Christ even to the point of death. In Luke 9.23, the emphasis is on the the daily picking up of the cross. Daily laying your life down in service to our King. But the emphasis here in Luke 14.27 is just slightly different. In the Gospels, I counted five unique times when Jesus gave a similar call like this, a call to pick up your cross. And the, and the verb that Jesus typically chooses to use is the verb to pick up or, or to lift up in the air. In John 8.59, this was the word, the verb that describes the Pharisees picking up stones to throw at Christ. It's the pick up the cross. And that's what we find in Luke 9.23. Whoever wishes to follow me must, must daily pick up his cross. We also see this same sort of expression and phrase in Mark eight thirty four and Matthew 16, 24. Calls to follow Christ. All of these verses employ this phrase, picking up your cross and following him. And now, it's a slight difference, but what we ha- find here in Luke 14, 27 is a different word. And Jesus here says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry it. The verb in, is used elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke. In, in chapter 7, verse 14, there's a group of men carrying a coffin. In Luke twenty-two ten, 10, there's a man who carries a pitcher of water. And even in John 19, 17, this verb is used of Jesus carrying his own cross to Golgotha. So I don't believe it was an accident that Jesus used this particular word here in Luke 14, 27. He's emphasizing the ongoing perpetual aspect of following Christ, the carrying of the cross. You, You must, yes, pick up the cross, and you must do so daily, but we also must carry the cross throughout life. We must continue to walk carrying this burden on our back. We must in essence, give our lives to following Christ. I believe this is the second aspect that's being highlighted here of this cost of discipleship. It seems to be slightly emphasizing this sustained temporal aspect of following Jesus. It's, it's a lifelong commitment. We could compare being a Christian to, to running a marathon. It's unceasing submission to Christ from the, from the day you come to know Christ to the day you die. It's supreme Commitment lifelong commitment So this is what Jesus says it means to be a disciple of Christ you supremely give all allegiance to Christ and If that's not what you're in for if you're not willing to give this cost then don't consider yourself a disciple of Christ That's what Jesus tells them bluntly Look if you don't meet the requirements if you're not interested in paying this paying this particular price Then don't claim the title of a Christian and Jesus then points out a third aspect of the cost, the, the cost of discipleship in verse 33. Looking ahead a bit in the text, look at verse 33 with me. Jesus says this, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. What a thing to say. I'm calling this the material cost in verse 33, the material cost. And we say, well, well what is this cost here? Well, it's absolute forfeiture of all that you own. It's giving up everything you own. Again, this is how Jesus, he turned to the crowd and confronted them with these words. Look, if you if you want to be my, be my disciple, you must give up all your own possessions. You must renounce everything. Forsake all you own. This is Jesus used this same verb here, this for, renounce, forsake elsewhere to just use it as a sense of saying goodbye bidding someone farewell in essence what he's calling us to do is to say goodbye to all of your possessions just wish it away everything you own forsaken and turned over to the discretion of god forsake everything you own and follow me this was the same cost uh, or the same condition that jesus gave the rich young ruler who came up to him in Luke 18. You'll recall the rich young ruler. He came and fell down before Jesus, earnestly pleading with him. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him there in verse 22, he says, sell all of your possessions, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And this man, as you know, living in great wealth, could not do it. He was not willing to meet that cost. So the cost of discipleship includes willingly surrendering all that we possess to the will of Christ. Being willing to leverage all of our things for Christ. This means that a Christian cannot carry on just pursuing wealth for the sake of gaining wealth and gaining personal benefit and personal pleasure. We steward the money that God has given to us. We're entrusted with money and we use it at his disposal. We say to him, Lord, how would you like me to use all of my things, use my house, use my car, use my income for your glory? It's ultimately all of our things are just subjected to Christ. And so this is entire renunciation of our material things for the sake of Christ. This, that's the cost of being a Christian. That's the cost of discipleship. So so we've seen here, following Christ requires giving him supreme allegiance in your life. Following Christ requires a lifelong commitment to to carry your cross. And following Christ requires just an entire renunciation of material goods, material wealth. And so to these large crowds, these would-be disciples of Jesus, Jesus sets these Requirements down in front of them for all to see. Again, he confronts them with him. He says, Look, this is what you're signing up for. Are you still interested in being my disciple? Do you still want to follow me now? Uh, take a good hard look at the cost and make sure you want to follow me. Unless they were still sort of star-struck by Jesus' person, and to make sure that this reality was sinking into their heads, Jesus then gives two illustrations, two illustrations sort of to test their resolve. And Jesus highlights in these illustrations the foolishness of a half-hearted commitment to Christ. Look at verse 28 with me. Look at this illustration. First illustration, verse 28. Jesus says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who, obs- who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. This first illustration here pictures a man contemplating uh, the thought of building a tower. Uh, this would have either been a tower for protection, a lookout tower, or it could have been a storage tower for farmed goods. But at any case, it would have been a, a sign of above average wealth. And also, one does not build a tower without other people noticing. It's something that would attract people's attention. Everyone in the community would have known about this construction project, building a tower. And so Jesus' question to the, qu- the crowds was this, which one of you would build such a tower without first sitting down and doing some preliminary calculations? Or would you not first assess to make, to make sure you have the funds to complete this project. Otherwise, if you begin the work on the tower and you, if you lay the foundation and then run out of funds, you run out of materials, then you would just have a permanent monument to your own foolishness. And you would then be opening yourself up to the scorn and ridicule of everyone who would pass by. As I thought about this, in our very own city, there's a prime example of the ridicule that comes upon a man who foolishly builds a tower and is not able to complete it. About once a month, I go to visit a friend, a homebound friend of mine who lives near the corner of 56th Street and Nybauer. And my friend lives in the shade of this building that that I have heard referred to as the Tyvek Tower. This Tyvek Tower is somewhat of a geographical landmark on the West End. The tower is an extension coming off this rather large home that extends up into the air 20 to 30 feet above all the other neighboring houses. And I know little about this scenario, but it's clear that for whatever reason, the man began to build, and he almost completed this tower, but then for some reason ran short. He stopped at the last minute, and it's left with the siding not put up and the windows not put in. And thus, this sort of the plywood, just coated in Tyvek, construction wrap, just kind of hangs out in open elements to be faded by the sun, just sort of protruding out like a lighthouse for the eye of everyone who drives by. You simply can't miss it. And every time I go to visit my friend, I think, "Wow, what an eyesore." And I, who would spend so much money? to then, not, then to fail to finish it? Who, who would do this? And so here I am joining in the thousands who drive by and cast scorn on this man, going, who would do such a thing? And Jesus tells us that this is like a half-hearted commitment to follow Christ. It deserves ridicule. It's worthy of ridicule. And then Jesus gives another illustration that's very similar. Look at it in your Bible, verse 31. Or what king... Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. This is very similar to the first one. What king would, would see another king coming with an approaching army would not first sit down and calculate, am I able to defeat that king? and here he's outnumbered two to one he would ask does he have any advantages at his disposal I mean these are two to one outnumbering he'd be thinking can I leverage something to win this battle perhaps the topography of the land maybe I can use a surprise attack or perhaps he he knows the training of his own men is superior to this army and he might have an edge there perhaps the, the approaching army might be tired from long travel and he'll have some advantage there but if not If he does not have some advantage, uh, just judging by sheer numbers alone, he knows that he will face certain defeat. And if he so calculates that he cannot win or he will not win, and the odds are significantly stacked against him, then he will do well well to send in advance a a peace-seeking delegation to this approaching king. I mean, there is no valor in blindly leading his men to their certain death. And so the point of both illustrations is the importance of assessing the cost. Both endeavors here require full resolve. They require full commitment. They require that you sit down and thoughtfully contemplate, can I build a tower? Can can I do this? Do I have the labor, the cost of labor and materials? Before you go to war, you, you evaluate the risk and so there it's then it's also true that before you follow christ you must count the cost you sit down and calculate can i do this and this is a missing step in so much of what is called evangelism today there's really no use in hiding the reality of the christian life from people we ought to tell people in our evangelism look you must believe the gospel. You must repent of your sins. You must trust in Christ for salvation. He, he's your only hope of escaping the wrath to come. You must believe in him. Christ is your only hope. You must repent of your sins and become a f- follower of Christ. We tell them all those things, but we also must warn them, it will cost you. You will have to give up everything that you own. You surrender everything to Christ. You have to forsake your dignity in this life. You're going to lose your reputation over this. How you spend your time will now be at the dictate of another. Your free time will no longer be yours to allocate. Your ambitions in life will now be subjugated to Christ's will for your life. Your goals will have to be recast entirely. Your comfort will have to be forsaken. You'll have to forget living for your comfort. And hardship will now become your reality. Christ has promised it for us. Your sin and the secret pleasures of your soul will need to be put to death. And your wealth will now be managed by Christ. He'll oversee it all. And quite simply, to sum up, we'll just say that you're now a slave of Christ. You turn your life over to him. You live for him. So count the cost, we tell them. Count the cost. Yes, you must believe in Christ, but count the cost. You must follow Christ, but it will cost you your life. You must do it. You must follow Christ. He's the only door to eternal life. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to God except through Him. But the way is hard, and the path is narrow. It's difficult. So, will you surrender your life to Christ? Will you pick up your cross and follow Him and daily carry it? Will you carry it at home, and will you carry it on your job site? Will you carry it at work? Will you carry it at the doctor's office? Well, you carry it at the sports bar, and everywhere you go, you count the costs, and if they say, "Well, yes, I want to be, become a Christian, yes, I, yes, I'll do that. I'll, I'll do that. I'll take up my cross and I'll follow Christ." Well then we say, "Great, we rejoice. We praise the Lord, but we must not give up there. They have yet to feel the full weight of the cross. They don't even know what they're getting into yet. And so we let them walk for a while as a Christian. We, we, we watch them as they follow in Christ's steps. And we watch as the trials come. We watch how they endure hardships. And we watch to see if they continue to choose to deny their flesh. We let their love for Christ be seen in their uphill battle for sanctification. We watch to see if they'll follow Christ when others turn away. And so in time, we let their perseverance and their obedience to Christ over the long term be evidence of their salvation jesus after all said you will know them by their fruits you will know them by their life you will know them by their fruits not by their raised hand in a dark room that's not the idea so to the true christian the call to discipleship really is quite simple To the true Christian, this is no difficult decision for them. And no laborious calculations are needed for the one that God is truly calling calling to himself. To the one who God has been preparing their heart and drawing them to himself, they gladly surrender all. They see the cost and they gladly surrender it all. To to give up your life in trade for gaining Christ, they say, yes, that takes no thought, I'm glad to do that. It takes no long contemplation to the true Christians who have tasted of the kindness of Christ. They they gladly give up all to follow Christ. To the person who truly knows the depravity of their own heart and who has a sense of the holiness and righteousness and justice of God, they will gladly surrender all to follow Christ. This, I believe, is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 11 verses 28 when he says come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you Uh, take my teaching upon you take my cost of discipleship take all the hardship on you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls and he says for my yoke is easy and my burden is light to those who come to Christ in humble repentance and faith, they, they gladly bear the cost of discipleship. It becomes light, it's easy for them. This reminded me of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, that great Christian classic, when John Bunyan describes when the character hopeful came to a saving understanding of Jesus Christ, you know, aware of his great need and understanding the true gospel, hopeful describes his conversion this way he says and now and now my heart full of joy mine eyes full of tears and my affections running over with love for the name and people and the ways of Jesus Christ coming to Christ had made me see that all that the world notwithstanding all the righteousness thereof is in a state of condemnation And it made me see that God the Father, though he be just, can justly justify the coming sinner. And it made me greatly ashamed of the vileness of my former life and confounded me with a sense of my own ignorance. For there never came a thought into my heart before now that showed me so the beauty of Jesus Christ. It made me love a holy life and long to do something for the honor and glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he says this, Yea, I thought that had I now a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I could spill it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, for hopeful, having tasted of the mercy and the kindness and the love of Christ, he was willing to pay the greatest price. Ten thousand gallons of blood spilt for Christ's name. He was willing to give it all. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God must prepare their hearts. And so to the one whom the Father is preparing and is drawing to himself, they will gladly give this cost. They will gladly pay this cost. They'll gladly surrender all. And telling them to count the cost will in no way hinder them. Telling them to count the cost will in no way slow them down. But for those who come to Christ seeking temporal gain, seeking some earthly benefit, they need to be warned. This will cost you your life. It's full-out allegiance to Christ. Surrender everything. Give up your life. Count the cost before you set out in following Christ. This is what we must do in our evangelism. This is is how we must think about following Christ. It's full-out surrender, full-out allegiance to Christ. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these words. We think of Jesus as the evangelist here. What an example he gives to us large crowds of people who were interested in him following him and he confronts them with the truth he warns them calls them to surrender all to even hate their own life to to surrender everything to carry their cross take it up and to follow him all of their days to give up all of their own possessions he he confronted them telling them that they must count the cost do not think this is easy do not think it is light It will cost you your life. So, Lord, I pray that this is true of each one in this room. I pray that they would have eyed this cost of following Christ, that they would rightly see what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would conform our understanding of what it means to be a Christian to Jesus' teaching. Help us to understand what it means to be a Christ, to be fully, to be a Christian, to be fully surrendered to Christ. Lord, and as we prayed earlier, we know that there's areas of our life that we struggle to surrender. So we ask for your help. We ask for your grace to help us lay down every area of our lives in obedience to you. And if there's any here who have never done that, if they've never surrendered their lives fully to Christ, who are sort of pretending to be a Christian and living a double life, God, I pray you'd convict them of their sin. Holy Spirit, would you bother them by the sin in their life bother them by their hypocrisy and their great need for christ and would they come again and surrender themselves fully before him giving their life to christ to live as his slave on the earth lord and help us to live this way each and every day because this is what it means to be a disciple of christ so we pray for your help and we pray this in jesus name amen